success in the eight-year Doha round of free trade talks was seized on as a possible circuit breaker to the effects on the world economy of the financial crisis. But more than a year on, and despite repeated calls for a breakthrough, talks between the members of the World Trade Organization remain stalled. Instead, an explosion of free trade deals between countries frustrated by Doha's lack of progress, including New Zealand, has emerged. Economics correspondent Nigel Sterling asks whether these deals can deliver the same prosperity as success in the multilateral round. As you look at uh, the picture from our chopper now arriving at the scene, uh, Jim Friedel in Hoboken uh, said it appeared to back sharply and mm. smash directly, perhaps purposefully, into. Oh, oh my goodness! Oh God! There's another one. Oh. oh my goodness! There's another this one. This seems to be on purpose. Oh my goodness! Another now you. Plane? Now it's obvious. I think that uh, th there's a second plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. I think we have a terrorist attack of proportions that we cannot begin to imagine at this juncture. In the shadow of the September 2001 attacks in New York, members of the World Trade Organization met in the Qatari capital of Doha. The Uruguay round of talks had provided a multi-billion dollar boost to exporting nations, but had been concluded six years previously. The round launched in Doha aimed for a better deal for poor countries and to ward off recession following the attacks just weeks before. But the talks have gone nowhere. Poor countries have refused to agree to lift barriers to trade in return for improved access to first world markets, while the Americans have also been reluctant to sign up to a deal without these concessions. Last July, the WTO Director General, Pascal Lamy, declared the talks deadlocked. What members have uh, let uh, slip uh, through their fingers this time is a package worth more than $130 billion a year in tariff saving by the end of the implementation period. With $35 billion saving in agriculture, $95 billion saving in industrial goods, with emerging countries contributing one-third and benefiting from two-thirds of overall gains. A true development package. The breakdown in talks last July was quickly followed by the near collapse of the world financial system. This had a chilling effect on world trade, which suffered its sharpest contraction since the 1930s. Leaders from the 20 most industrialised countries pledged in April to resist protectionist measures. But since then, those countries have broken that pledge, on average, every three days. The United States is one of the culprits. Desperate to protect jobs, it risked a trade war when it slapped a 35% tariff on tyre imports from China earlier this year. But more importantly, the move demonstrated the tensions the new Obama administration faces over trade policy. Observers say the US needs to be on board if the Doha deadlock is to be broken. But the American Chamber of Commerce Vice President for Asia, Tammy Overby, is not hopeful. The Democratic Party is split. You've, you've got a lot of uh, folks there who are from the labor union movement who do not really see the value of trade. Unfortunately, uh, we haven't done a good enough job in my country of explaining to uh, our union and uh, unions and to uh, many Americans in general the benefits of trade. America's pro-free trade policy under George Bush has been in limbo since the election of Barack Obama. 
Tammy Overby says the White House has been reluctant to take on anti-free trade Democrats, especially while it needs their support to get ambitious health care and climate change legislation past Congress. But former New Zealand trade negotiator Charles Finney says time is running out for the Doha round. We have to look at the electoral cycle uh, in the United States. We've got elections coming up at the end of 2010. That usually complicates the decision-making process um, in Washington. I would suggest that there is a window of opportunity which maybe would close in the late April, early May period. So if we don't have the modalities tied down by then, uh, then potentially we're looking at another significant delay in this negotiation. And there will come a point, I think, when people will, will run out of patience and be literally talking about putting this negotiation on ice. The Trade Minister Tim Grosser, himself a former top official at the World Trade Organisation, is more hopeful. I think we're all still struggling to find a way through in the Doha round. Um, I still maintain what I've always said. We've had eight rounds of negotiations since the Second World War. The last two have been exactly like this, an absolute nightmare to try and finish because nobody's ever happy given that it's a compromise. We're still trying to find our pathway through that. Frustrated by Doha's lack of progress, countries have rushed to sign deals between themselves, reducing barriers to trade. According to the WTO, 25 regional free trade deals were signed in the last year, while another 100 are under negotiation. New Zealand has been increasingly active in this area, signing deals with Malaysia, China and the ASEAN countries in the last two years. Negotiations with the six Gulf Cooperation Council countries, as well as Hong Kong, have concluded in recent months. In negotiations for a prized regional free trade deal with the seven countries of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, including the United States, resume next year. Tim Grosser says the flurry of deals is of historical importance for New Zealand. That had been a major concern of people like me 15 years ago, that New Zealand would find itself not only cut out of Europe, not only cut out of North America, which New Zealand didn't have an FTA, as you know, but would the Asian countries ever accept Australia and New Zealand as part of their deal? That was a real question 15 years ago. We can now answer it. The answer is, fortunately, yes, they will consider us as part of the Asian deal. The deals have led to quicker gains than waiting for agreement among all 153 members of the WTO in the Doha round. But will they deliver the prosperity that would result from success in the world trade talks? New Zealand has free trade deals either in place or under negotiation with 10 of Fonterra's top 20 export markets. Ken Gaird is a senior executive with the dairy giant and says both regional deals and a global one are important. The Doha round is important for reducing tariffs but probably not eliminating tariffs. It's also important for abolishing export subsidies. Whereas in a FTA or a regional FTA, you're very unlikely to be able to do the subsidy one. But in terms of market access, you should be getting down to zero uh, eventually for all items. So in the China FTA, for example, we go to zero for all key dairy items. Same happens in the ASEAN FTA. And those are advantages we probably could not get in the Doha round. Gary Hawke is the head of Victoria University's School of Government. His research interests include New Zealand's trade policy of the 1960s and 70s. 
Professor Hawke says trade and trade protectionism has evolved since that time. I think the initiating change is coming from the nature of economic integration between countries, and indeed economic integration becomes part of a wider set of integrations of countries more generally. But the, as the style of integration which is taking place is deeper than it used to be. So it's no longer a matter of putting things in boxes and carrying them from one country to another. It's actually integrating processes of production across boundaries and engaging with customers in a different sort of way. Professor Hawke says the future incomes of New Zealanders will depend on their ability to work in other countries. Take, for example, the extent to which people providing services across boundaries should be able to travel in order to um, maintain direct links with their customers who are receiving services in another, another country. Where you run into problems there includes things like who can have a licence for operating in a particular country, in a particular activity. So what lawyers ought to be able to practice in a particular country. In a sense, on the one hand, you want uh, effective provision of legal services, so you want to be able to draw on an international supply. On the other hand, you want lawyers who know the particular circumstances of a country. And so you've got to think about how you set the line. These are considerations for New Zealand, which next year resumes negotiations with the world's biggest economy. The Prime Minister John Key acknowledges the Americans will attach conditions to a free trade deal. With any of these negotiations you have to look and say even if I have to give a little bit, if I'm gaining more then that's got to be worth it and that's the sort of hard cold calculation New Zealand will inevitably have to make. But I'd be surprised in the final analysis if we were to walk away with a potential FTA of such a high quality with the United States of America. Um, because we weren't prepared to give a little bit on the odd sort of area. So what does America want from a free trade deal, and what will New Zealand get in return? The US Trade Representative's office each year compiles a list of barriers to American trade around the world. This year's report runs to more than 500 pages and covers 63 countries, including New Zealand. A former New Zealand trade negotiator, Murray Denyer, says the report is America's free trade wish list, and near the top of that list is the government's drug-buying agency, Pharmac. The US for a long time has had uh, a gripe with the way that New Zealand organises its purchasing of prescription drugs through Pharmac. They find that process to be somewhat lacking in transparency and predictability and accountability. And, uh, of course, about 80% of New Zealand's uh, prescription drugs are bought through that system and qualify for, for subsidies. So that's clearly an area where US pharmaceutical interests would like to see some reform. Murray Denyer doesn't think the US will push for Pharmac to be scrapped. More pressure might have come on the New Zealand government to abolish the agency in bilateral negotiations. But the US is unlikely to jeopardise getting a foothold in Asia through the Trans-Pacific Partnership over Pharmac. You have to look at all of these issues with some relativity. We're talking about eight countries in a regional context. So, uh, you know, of course the US will have its suite of market access issues uh, and other issues with each of the countries, each of the other seven countries, just as New Zealand has specific issues with each of the other countries uh, that it's negotiating with. So within a, an eight-party negotiation, there's a web, if you like, of, of, of issues that, that will go around the traps of, of each different country with its agenda versus the others. Murray Denyer expects the US will push for clearer criteria around which type of drugs are on Pharmac's priority list. 
The executive director of the New Zealand Organisation for Rare Disorders is John Foreman. He says any push for transparency will help US companies claw back the $400 million of savings achieved by the agency since 1997. If there was more transparency, for example, if Pharmac was required to disclose which was its you know, top three or five priority purchases that it wanted to make, that would tend to push the price up because the companies would know that. If that is kept confidential, then the companies are not in a position to know exactly whether Pharmac really wants this one or whether it's on a bit of a fishing expedition to see if it can get the price down. The transparency that is being talked about sounds like it's only to weaken Pharmac's bargaining position and to advantage the company. John Foreman says New Zealand risks being lumped with the worst of the American health system. In the United States, once a drug is licensed by the Food and Drug Administration, it is presumed to have a statistically significant benefit over other drugs, and that is one of the criteria for which the FDA will grant a licence. From that point on, there is a tendency for that presumably better drug to be regarded as the standard of care. I think in their complex legal system, that is what is expected to be provided and what the insurance company would reimburse on. Now, while many of these drugs will have an additional benefit, it is not always a good measure of the price that has to be paid for that additional benefit. So we have a situation where, in many instances, there might be significant but minor benefits against a very significant price increase. And I think that the function that Pharmac has saying, well, yes, you can show an improvement. The clinical trials and the evidence shows that there is an improvement in the use of this drug. But if we get a very marginal increase in the clinical benefit against a very substantial increase in the dollar cost, then is it worth it? Is that a good enough gain for our health system? Would we not be better to invest that other money into something else, like surgery or primary health care? And those are the sorts of trade-offs that are being made. The American system is not sophisticated enough to cope with that sort of thing. It's just a blunt instrument. The range of statistics that are provided in many, many settings, that they spend massively increased amounts per capita on health care and don't get massively increased health gains as a result. Jane Kelsey is an Auckland University law professor and a critic of New Zealand's free trade policy. Speaking from the Caribbean, she said the deal the US wants will restrict future governments. When we're looking at this kind of FTA with the US, one of their objectives will be to restrict new initiatives that governments can take and to impose a kind of a standstill approach that says the current level of liberalisation is as restrictive as you're allowed to be. Now, if we look at the prospect of privatisations occurring, for example, in Kiwi Bank or in Television New Zealand or in ACC, it's going to be exceptionally difficult for a future government to step back in and do what they have done in as a result of the failed privatisations of the past and re-establish state-owned institutions. New Zealand avoided a deeper recession than other countries during the global financial crisis. This was partly because local financial institutions avoided the complex debt instruments and toxic derivatives that wreaked havoc overseas. 
Jane Kelsey says New Zealand may not have been so lucky if a free trade agreement with the US had been in place. This is despite a so-called prudential carve-out allowed under World Trade Organisation rules. This allows countries to take anti-free trade measures to protect the stability of their financial systems. If we have the kind of providers operating in the US with those kind of toxic products on a cross-border basis and New Zealand decides in advance of a meltdown that it wants to impose restrictions on the amount of money that flows out into those kinds of investments, the amount of investment the Kiwi Bank investors or ACC or others can put into those kinds of funds, uh, we are likely to confront real difficulties. The US will be seeking to do its very best to ensure that we don't reserve those rights. If we can't prove that there is a problem in terms of instability or consumer protection, and if they haven't yet gone under, and especially if they've got, say, a AAA credit rating, as many of the subprime mortgage CDOs did have, then it would be very difficult to bring them within the prudential carve-out. New Zealand exporters face tariffs of up to 50% on sales into the United States. Australia got little immediate relief from high tariff barriers on farm exports from its deal five years ago, and the key sugar industry was excluded after opposition from American farmers. Jane Kelsey says the political climate for trade deals has scarcely improved in Washington since that time. She questions what exporters here will get out of a trade deal with the Americans. All of this will be being argued for in the context of some kind of concessions to Fonterra. And the statements that have just been coming out of the Congress from the Democrat makes it very clear that Obama is not going to get any of those kinds of concessions through the House. So there is a real danger that New Zealand hasn't talked up the potential of this FTA will then enter into negotiations, put all kinds of concessions on the table in terms of services and investment, and potentially IT as well, and then gets nothing in return. Uh, will it be brave enough to walk away from that? Ideologically, neither National nor Labor would uh, give any indication that they'd be prepared to do so. Fonterra's Ken Geard admits negotiations with the Americans over market access will be tough but he says the potential gain for farmers here from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, are considerable. There would be considerable gains uh, for the New Zealand dairy industry in improved access and reducing the high tariffs in certain countries. So we would see the TPP as a high priority for us. For example, the United States is a very large cheese market of over 4 million tonnes, right? most of which is missed from domestic production and about say 200,000 tonnes from imports at the moment. If the cheese market was opened to a significant degree, that would allow for more imports uh, from New Zealand. New Zealand suffered the highest casualty rate per head of population in World War I of any country involved. This was rewarded in 1932 when New Zealand was given preferential access to Britain's market for farm exports. This was one of two key events which determined New Zealand's trading relationships and its economic prosperity last century.
The other was in the 1970s, when New Zealand's hard-won access to British markets was diminished by the UK's entry into the European community. This marked the start of this country's long decline from the top of world economic league tables. Jeff Bertram is a senior research associate at Victoria University's Institute of Policy Studies. He says attempts to tackle climate change means New Zealand is on the cusp of another seismic shift in its trading relationships. Dr Bertram says the national government's watered-down emissions trading scheme has left exporters vulnerable. New Zealand is exposing itself completely unnecessarily, in my view, to retaliation which could be extremely damaging, and especially to our agricultural industries, but also to our tourism. The key point is that uh, we are conspicuously going to be a country which has hyped up its window dressing about climate change and delivered nothing of substance and policy. That makes us look fundamentally dishonest, I think, in, uh, in climate change negotiations, and it's precisely the sort of positioning that invites the French, for example, to take advantage of our policy weakness to move against our exports to Europe. This sort of trade retaliation would come in the form of so-called border tax adjustments. These are where countries impose taxes at the border on imports from countries without carbon taxes or an ETS. This way countries do not lose jobs to those with less rigorous global warming policies. The French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, says the taxes could help bring climate change laggards into line. And they are also included in the emissions trading bill that is progressing through the US Congress. But former trade negotiator and chief executive of the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research, John Ballingall, believes this country is not a direct target. There are groups who suggest that our emissions trading scheme is weak and uh, not comprehensive enough. But if we compare it to existing schemes and proposed schemes around the world, I think the New Zealand scheme stacks up pretty well. There are no exemptions, even though there are some delays in entering some sectors, and it covers all gases. That makes it fairly comprehensive. Therefore, I think a rational assessment and comparison between schemes would suggest that we're not a laggard and that we're not weak. Therefore, I think we stack up fairly well and our carbon cost differential shouldn't be too high. Fonterra's Ken Gaird says Europe will struggle to use environmental taxes against New Zealand farm exports. I think we should also remember that agriculture is not part of the European ETS, where it is to be part of the New Zealand ETS. And in the United States, this whole issue of border tax adjustments has been led by the steel, the aluminium, the paper, those type of you know large manufacturing industries, you might say, and not from the agriculture side. And the NZIER's John Ballingall believes border taxes, if they are used at all, will feature in a trade war between the larger trading blocks. China has already threatened to retaliate against American products if it uses border taxes on Chinese imports. But this doesn't mean New Zealand would emerge unscathed. It's likely to be between the big players or the big trade blocks, um, but it's possible that there could be unwitting effects on New Zealand. We could get caught in the crossfire. And uh, uh, perhaps a, a more serious risk is the fact that uh, any such dispute could put on hold any efforts towards trade liberalisation through the Doha round. It's already in a precarious state, and in, environmental trade barrier disputes could put that on hold. And again, that would be very bad news for New Zealand exporters. 
In the last week, New Zealand's climate change negotiators have pushed for a moratorium on border taxes. The Trade Minister, Tim Grosser, says it will provide valuable time for the world to line up climate change policy and trade rules. Victoria University's Jeff Bertram says the push for a moratorium is an acknowledgement that New Zealand's vulnerable. Either way, it proves New Zealand's trading relationship with the rest of the world still faces threats, despite the recent gains made in regional trade deals. That insight was written and presented by Nigel Sterling. Technical production was by Leanne Smith, and it was produced by Sue Ingram.